Hello and welcome to the January 2007 podcast for the Lancet Infectious Diseases, the first podcast of the year. My name is Oda Risker and I'm here with editor John McConnell to discuss some of the highlights. A review in this month's issue looks at HIV in prisons in low and middle income countries. The authors state that prisons are often neglected in the global response to HIV and AIDS and there's very little data available on the HIV prevalence and drug use in prison populations, especially in developing countries. Why is this? Well, prisons are particularly high risk environments for transmission of HIV because prisoners tend to have limited access to health care. They take part in unprotected sex. Um, there's a high prevalence of injecting drug users in uh, prisons and they of course they don't have access to uh, sterile equipment and also tattooing is also a factor which um, promotes the the transmission of uh, HIV. The authors also suggest that the situation may be more detrimental in low-income countries rather than high-income ones. Why is that? Well I think that comes down to um, a very basic comes down to the, the basic fact that the standard of care for prisoners should be always be the same as, as that for the wider community. Uh, and the standard of care for the wider community in low-income countries is just no, nowhere near as, uh, as good as it is in uh, high-income countries. There simply isn't the availability as yet uh, in many countries to antiretrovirals. Uh, and therefore, uh, prisoners suffer as, do, as does the wider community. And could you summarise some of the main evidence collected in the review? There was really a paucity of evidence. Um, they identified 152 countries as being low and middle income, and they used the uh, the World Bank classification for those countries. They found data on imprisonment rates in 142 of these countries, with Russia and Belarus having the highest rates of imprisonment. They found data on HIV prevalence in prisons in 75 of the 142 countries. So that's, that's roughly half. Uh, however, very few of these data were um, national data on prevalence. Uh, and some of, the, some of the data were just from single prisons. And they found prevalence rates of, greater than, of HIV of greater than 20% in prisons in 20 of the countries surveyed. What should governments be doing, both in terms of collecting data then and in terms of preventing the spread of HIV in their prisons? Well, what they could do, as has been done in um, some European countries, is that they could uh, make condoms available to prisoners, they could allow the distribution of um, sterile injecting equipment. But I think that that doesn't happen in perhaps the most highly developed country in the world, in the United States, for various um, political reasons. Uh, and I'm, therefore I think it's, it's unlikely to happen in many of the developing countries of the world until attitudes change. As, as to collecting data, well, you know, you need to go in and actually do the surveys. And of course, that will require the money to do that. And I think that's probably unlikely to happen until the population in the wider community has better access to HIV care. And finally, then, do you think it's likely that these strategies would be implemented? Again, I don't think I, I think it's that preventive strategies are unlikely to be implemented until they are available to the um, to the wider community outside prisons. You also published WHO guidelines this month for pharmacological management of H5N1 avian influenza in humans. How did they put together these guidelines? The WHO decided that they needed some uh, rational guidelines on how to treat and prevent with pharmaceuticals H5N1 avian influenza in um, sporadic infections. So that's, that's the, infection, the pattern of infection which we're currently seeing now, which is generally transmission from uh, poultry to human beings. These guidelines are not meant to deal with a pandemic situation. That needs to be made absolutely clear. So what they did is that they formed an expert panel and they gathered together all the available evidence on uh, treatment and prophylaxis. 
although they've made many recommendations, the, they found that the uh, evidence was of low quality and uh, some of the recommendations are made with very poor evidence, on the basis of very poor evidence indeed. And could you sum up some of the more important recommendations that they make? Yeah, well, I think the two most important recommendations is that um, oseltamivir should be given uh, for treatment for patients infected with H5N1 um, because of the, the disease is extremely severe and that um, neuraminidase inhibitors, which include oseltamivir and zanamivir, should be given for chemoprophylaxis in people who are at high risk of exposure to H5N1. And these include the family and household contacts of patients who are known to be infected. Finally then, there's an increasing number of antibiotic resistant infections globally and a forum article this month presents several perspectives on the problems of drug discovery and development as well as potential solutions. Who contributed to this article and what were the main problems they identified? Well, we got contributors together from a number of sources here. So we've had um, we've got viewpoints from the Infectious Diseases Society of America, from a hospital physician, from a primary care physician, from uh, a major pharmaceutical company, that's GlaxoSmithKline, from a small pharmaceutical company that's focusing on developing anti-infectives for hospital infections, that's Cubist, from um, small pharmaceutical companies whose, whose approach is to develop anti-infectives for community infections, and uh, also from a former regulator from the US uh, Food and Drug Administration. And we've also got a, um, a summing up of all these viewpoints by um, somebody who actually works for a, a pharmaceutical company. And what were the main problems? They well, the problems are identified. Um, I think we need to go back, look back several years. Uh, if we go back to 2002, uh, then the Infectious Disease Society of America did a survey then and they found that of 506 molecules under development by pharmaceutical and biotechnology companies, only six were actually antibiotics. Uh, and this is in the face of a situation where um, some pathogens are becoming resistant to um, um, to most of the antibiotics that we have available. So, for example, again this year, the Infectious Disease Society of America identified six um, antibiotic-resistant pathogens for which there were few or no drugs in uh, late-stage development. What potential solutions have they identified? Is there a reason to be optimistic? I think there's some cautious optimism. The writer who has summarised um, all the other viewpoints, Glenn Tillotson, he reckons that there are now about 30 agents in some stages of uh, research and development to, to deal with bacterial infections. Now, although not 